today on CityCast Madison. UW-Madison is Wisconsin's flagship university, but even with its sterling reputation, it too has blemishes, and it now wants to own them. Prompted by student protests, UW dove into its own history of bigotry and exclusion. UW's Public History Project is uncovering stories of resistance and struggle on the UW campus. Now, the project will be a permanent fixture, and they want your stories, if you got them. It's Monday, April 24th. I'm Bianca Martin, and here's what Madison's talking about. Casey, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thanks for being here. We have stuff to talk about. This project at UW is becoming a center. Why have this project at UW to begin with? Yeah, I think that's the kind of question we got all the time is like, why is UW looking into this history? Doesn't UW already do history work? And the answer is yes. There's a lot of UW history that's readily available that we use all the time as a university, but it is not a complete history. And often I think it, you know, for whatever reasons, intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, it really leaves a lot of people out of the story. And so the Public History Project was really started, I think, to take a different look at UW's history, one that really centered people who are not often a part of UW's narrative. And that's both good stories and good histories, where we're looking at positive things that have happened, great contributions to the university. But also we set out to take a real look at some of the more difficult histories in our university's past and to do some honest reckoning with those. And, you know, when I talked to former Chancellor Rebecca Blank, who commissioned the project and asked her, you know, why would you take something like this up? I always tell people, I think it was surprising that she commissioned the project. She's an economist. And so I think a lot of people were like, why would she do a history thing? But I tell people, you know, she was an economist. She did, I think, a kind of math equation about, you know, what what it would cost to do this history, but also what it would cost to not do it and to keep telling the same stories over and over again and to keep ignoring large parts of our campus community. And she was willing to kind of take that risk, take that gamble that, you know, we need to do something different. And when I talk to community you know, they really like this idea of reckoning, that history is there, it's not often recognized, but if we recognize it, what can we do with it? How can we learn from it? How can we change policies? How can we change campus and our community? Yes. So this is reckoning with UW-Madison's history of discrimination and resistance. Stories that are often, you know, people want to sweep those under the rug, but not everybody. And it actually, it was birthed out of a moment on campus, right? Like of activism. Yeah. Um, And I mean, we took a huge focus on activism just generally, because I think there's a way where you can talk about histories of discrimination or histories of racism. And, you know, it's the story of oppression. It's the story of these people are being oppressed. They're being discriminated against. Uh, Look at all this terrible history. And that's true. And we felt a responsibility to cover those things. And at the same time, people constantly fight back in really big ways and really small ways. And we wanted to give a lot of credit to them uh, for doing that, but also to show that there are ways to organize, there are ways to make change. 
Um, and so the project itself came out of a moment where students um, had learned about the history of two student organizations on campus in the 1920s who bore the name of the Ku Klux Klan. And students were really upset upon learning this, and they learned that two of the men in those groups had their names in Memorial Union. And so there was kind of this, I think, reflective moment as a campus. This was also, you know, you have to think this is during Charlottesville. Um, this is immediately following the violence in Charlottesville in 2017. There's a conversation about Black Lives Matter right? There's like a lot of cultural conversations about our history and why it matters. And so students were kind of, you know, saying, hey, why do we have these name spaces? But also, why didn't we know that these two student groups are on campus? And uh, Chancellor Rebecca Blank commissioned a committee to study the Klan's presence on campus. And that was in that report that they produced is where uh, the idea of the public history project came from. I really like that, the the idea of not just focusing on the oppression, but also folks that fought back the resistance. I want to get into one of the really compelling histories you've encountered with the project, and it's about what was once considered a lost tape in the UW archive. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this, quite frankly, might be the coolest thing that I've found in my career. Um, I came to UW and I had experience prior to this in Minneapolis doing housing history. And I was working in the archives and looking for stories and leads to kind of hunt down. And one of the UW archivists, Kat Fawn, said to me, um, have you heard about this housing film? And I said, no, what, do you, what housing film? Tell me more. And she began to tell me this kind of story about these reels of film that have been sitting in the UW archives for 60 years that were restricted. And I started kind of diving into the research. And what I found was that in 1961, Stuart Hanish, who was a filmmaker at UW, alongside Lloyd Barbie, who was one of the first Black legislators in the state of Wisconsin, they decided that they were kind of sick of talking about housing discrimination. They wanted to prove to particularly the white Madison public that housing discrimination was rampant in the city. So they got a station wagon and they kind of propped some boxes up in the back of the station wagon. They hid a camera in the back. And they took actors and students around Madison and had them seek out housing. What they caught on film was Black students being denied housing based on their race. And this was out in the Madison public. This wasn't campus housing. This was throughout the city of Madison. When the university found out, uh, because, you know, Stuart Hanish was working at the university at the time, they restricted the film. Uh, they refused to let the film be released. They stated it was legal concerns about privacy, but there wouldn't have really been legal ground for people to sue. But what they were really worried about was reputationally, and they didn't want the city of Madison to view the university as kind of coming into the city, filming people undercover, you know, this kind of invasive relationship was what they were worried about. But they restricted the film in 1962, and it sat in the UW archives, unseen, untouched, until 2021, when we fought the legal restriction, got it lifted. Wisconsin Public Television helped us to digitize the materials in the film, and then we put it on display for the first time um, alongside Lloyd Barbie's family. And what does restricted mean? Like, that no one could see it? It was 
kind of unpack that a little bit. Archival restrictions are super interesting. I think people think of an archive. It's like you walk in, you can see whatever you want. Archival restrictions are a common practice. And um, oftentimes they protect those in power. Um, they do not protect the vulnerable, although now there's a big movement in archives to kind of restrict things to protect victims, for example. But these were restricted by the university. And so there's a letter with this film that says no one is allowed to see this film except upon the express permission of the University of Wisconsin Board of Regents. And you busted that down. It's been over 50 years. And once th this project, you guys took on um, getting this revealed and now it's accessible to the public. I watched it and it's, it's harrowing, honestly. Like it feels like getting punched in the stomach because you're watching these this footage and the, you get the audio of folks basically being turned away and for no explanation. And at one point you hear someone say, well, you know why, you know, they're putting it because it's uncomfortable. And you see these white people are denying housing. It's 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 extremely uncomfortable. Yeah, we wanted to like leverage the public history project. We had this kind of moment where we, you know, we could say you hired us, you started this project to look into these histories let us look into them. And, you know, the legal affairs office did a whole review and came back and said, you know, we're not worried. We think people can see this. It's been 60 years. And so now that it's digitized and fully available online, I think in my experience as a housing historian, I have yet to find anything else like it. Um, we know that housing discrimination was rampant in the mid-century. We have so many firsthand accounts from non-white people, in particular Black people who seek out housing and who say, you know, I was turned away really explicitly. They said, I cannot accept you in my neighborhood because you are Black. My neighbors will be mad. My housing values will go down, et cetera. But it was always this kind of thing that I think people could dismiss. They could say, oh, like, did somebody really say that to you? Right? There's this seed of doubt. This film erases that doubt. You can see it in black and white right on the screen in front of you. I can feel it in my jaw right now, like while we're talking about it, having watched it, like it's just so uncomfortable. So I think it's really powerful for that. Like the film itself, I think, is not only a snapshot of then, but I think it opens up a really important conversation about, you know, housing in Madison and about the history of housing in Madison. And it really is something that I think makes it real for people. Absolutely. And I understand that you ended up getting a lot of attention around this and you did programming. The two men who, who put the, pulled this together that you mentioned that they, they had passed away, but you got a hold of their families and had an event. Yeah, we, you know, I think as public historian, um, part of the field is community engagement, but also like really thinking carefully about um, not being exploitative when we go and when we work with communities and when we think about history, just because you can tell a story doesn't mean you should. And it also doesn't mean you're the right person to tell that story. And so we wanted to make sure that Lloyd Barbie's family in particular had talked about this film publicly. Um, his daughter, Daphne Barbie Wooten, had written about the film in a book that she wrote about her dad. And so we contacted her immediately and said, you know, we think we found the film. We would like to get it digitized, but we want your input on what we do with it from there. And um, we also reached out to Stu Hanish's son, Eric Hanish, who is a filmmaker out in Washington State, and said this, a similar thing to him, you know, what, what should we do with this? And both families were, first of all, ecstatic to learn that the film still existed. They believed that it had been burned. That was something that was kind of highly publicized at the time, was that UW was going to burn this film. And so they were both ecstatic that it existed. But when we talked with them, they said, you know, our fathers were really clear. They, they made this film. They wanted to release this film to start a conversation 
conversation about housing discrimination, that's what we want to do. They would want people to see it. That's why they made it. So you should show it. So we um, got the film digitized and then did this event with Wisconsin Public Television um, where we were able to bring um, Daphne Barbie Wooten and some of the family members into conversation with current organizers and folks in Madison about housing discrimination. So we were not only talking about the historical kind of remnants of housing discrimination, but also what's happening in the city today. Yeah. And you had Vanessa McDowell from YWCA there, you know, who does a lot of work. I have so many goosebumps on my body right now just thinking about it. And I hope, you know, and lots of people saw the, the tape. I hope other people do as well. We'll share it in our show note. Attorney Z. Usman with Usman Law in Madison has helped thousands of folks fight back against abusive debt collectors. And he wants to help you too. The average interest rate on credit cards today is 25%. So for example, if you charge $10,000, you're really gonna owe a lot more than that in the end. If you only make minimum payments each month, you're gonna be paying that off for longer than you realize. You'll end up paying more in interest than you borrowed to begin with. And nobody's got time for that. But there's help. Attorney Usman can help you figure out how long it'll take to pay off your debts. Then he can help you find ways to pay them off sooner and for less. To learn the easiest way to pay things off, visit madtownlawyer.com to schedule a free call with attorney Usman, the finance fixer. You know, you just did a talk about um, Van Heis, one of the main buildings on campus, the languages building, sky high. Um, he was a eugenicist. But I didn't know that the man that the building was named after was purveying these ideas that led to, you know, forced sterilizations of lots of women of color and just basically racist ideas that were very dangerous. That's another one of these stories. Yeah, I think like one of the goals of the Public History Project was to think really critically about our history and just to ask questions, right? Where do these histories come from? Where are these stories coming from? What stories have been overlooked or neglected? And one of those things that happened right when I got to campus is there were a couple kind of core issues that kept coming up. And one of them was eugenics history on campus. And we actually had this really fruitful partnership with the genetics department on campus where they approached us and said, we want to reckon with our history of eugenics. Can you help us? And that's my favorite because when people do that, they're kind of ready. Um, and so you, you have a really good opportunity to say like, yes, let's do it. And they had that energy. So we did this whole presentation with Nicole Nelson, who's a professor in the history of science, medicine, and technology. And she gave this big, wide sweeping presentation on eugenics in the United States and in Europe. And then we had graduate students present on the genetic department's specific history of eugenics. And then I came in as to facilitate a discussion and say like, okay, so now you know the history. What do you do? And they made a lot of decisions based on it. So one thing is now if you go to their website, they have a, a full history of their department's kind of work in eugenics. Wow. That was not there before. So it is not only the celebratory, our department's so great, but it's also, hey, you know, part of our department was built on eugenic ideas. And what does that mean for us? And what does it mean for the field? They also teach a um, one credit eugenics history course um, in the department for their students. So students will be graduating from that department and they will have the opportunity to learn about eugenics. And in all those conversations is kind of when this Van Heist issue came up is people were like, 
who, you know, we were investigating who are the eugenics people on campus, who's participating in these conversations. And Van Heis's name rose to the top of that list really quickly, partially because of his prominence, right? He was the president of UW, so he had a, a stage, if you will. But he was also outspoken. He was just really passionate about eugenics. Um, he thought that it was going to solve a lot of our society's problems. So he wrote about it. He spoke about it. And it was kind of one of his you know, pet projects, if you will, that he was really, really invested in what the practice of eugenics could do for the state of Wisconsin. That's horrifying. I'm really glad that um, those these conversations are happening. I want to get to one more story you guys are focusing on, also acts of resistance, as we talked about. And one of those stories stood out from another UW law student who, you know, is having issues with her desk. Yes, Bridget McGuire. <laughs> um, Bridget was one of those stories. So we had this graduate student working with us, Emma Wathan, who is incredible and had done a little work on like disability history. And she approached me and said, you know, I'd love to work for the project. I want to look at disability history on campus. And we knew that that was something we wanted to cover. And actually, it was something that when we told people we were covering it as part of the project, they were surprised. And I think that in and of itself tells you something, that when people think of discrimination, they don't often think of folks with disabilities. And so we immediately knew we kind of had an opportunity here to open a new conversation. Um, so Emma did this incredible research, which resulted, one of the results of her research was this blog post about Bridget McGuire, who was fighting to excessively be able to attend classes in the UW Law School. She wanted to get her education like everyone else. And the university was doing what they had thought was a reasonable accommodation. And I think this is one of the kind of issues with the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, is that reasonable accommodations are different for both parties. And so UW argued they were making a reasonable accommodation. Um, her wheelchair couldn't fit in her desk, and they offered to record the lectures and send them to her. But she argued that that wasn't reasonable, that she wanted to build community with her classmates, that she thought it was important to make connections with her professors in person. And especially for law school, that's a part of it. Especially. It's so much about networking. And so she argued that wasn't reasonable. And when they refused to help her, uh, she went to class and she took a circular saw and she cut a hole in her desk to fit her wheelchair in an act of protest. She did it right in the beginning of class in front of all of her students, you know, her fellow classmates. She gave a little speech and she said, you know, I want to take my place among you as your classmate. And I've been unable to do that. And so she revved up her circular saw and cut into her desk. It was one of those moments where you like read the story and you're just like, yes, <laughs> absolutely. I know. I'm just shaking. You guys can't, you can't see. She can, Casey can see me, but I am shaking my head like that is so badass. And also, I mean, obviously sad that she had to do it, but also she's like, you know what? No, not today. Not today. I will be in class with you. We research resistance a lot. And so there's like big and small and like there's these huge movements. And one of the things that's always kind of surprised me is like just the way that I think a lot of people w wouldn't think of protest or organizing as like a joyful practice. But like it is like reading about it for our team, we were like, so just like thrilled with the story. But then like, when you look at like photos from there's like a very grainy photo that's available, like her classmates are smiling, like you can see like, they're like, absolutely, Bridget cut into your desk. And we found so many moments of like, the brevity and like almost silliness of organizing that people spend all this time together and they're fighting for these really important issues. But they also are like, 
really fighting the absurdity sometimes of a system that is not made to accommodate you, right? And so there's this like joy that I don't think often gets noted. And as a project, people think our project's like very serious and very heavy, and it can be, but we also want to highlight those like moments of joy. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And, you know, just hearing this and thinking about it also, you know, getting the law schools on Bascom Hill. Jeez, <laughs> just going up Bascom Hill is is a is a very difficult feat for anyone. I'm just thinking about UW Madison and its uh, reputation and what drew me here in part was also knowing that it was it had this history of protest. But these are all stories that, you know, we heard today that I had not heard. I did not know Ben Heiss was a eugenicist. I didn't know these stories. And this is the work that you all are doing. You've been upgraded from a project that had an end date to a permanent center. You will be named that here um, later this year. Um, So congratulations on that. What does that mean? What what now? Yes, thank you. Um, We're beyond excited, beyond thrilled. You know, we started the project and I had this kind of sense that this was a Pandora's box, that you don't just get to dig into these histories, take them all out and then neatly put them all back away and put the box on the shelf. That's not really how these things work. But this work is political. This work can be controversial. And so we wanted to see what the potential was to continue the work and the project and our exhibit and our website and all these kind of materials we've put out have been so well received that the university has decided to continue it permanently. So we will be opening the Rebecca M. Blank Center for Campus History um, in July. And people keep asking us, what do you guys do. Um, And what I just tell them is, you know, right now we're doing listening sessions across campus and we're asking people how they want to receive this history. We don't want to assume what people want from us. And we're very much a community-based project. We're very much a service-oriented project. We want to serve the campus community. So we've gotten lots of great ideas from our community so far. But what I tell people is that if you like the public history project, if you think it's cool or you found our stories useful or you learned something new, we just get to do more. We get to do more research more storytelling, more engagement across campus and in the city of Madison. Um, You know, temporary projects, you kind of go and you have a mandate and you meet it. Now we get to kind of do whatever. I I pitched it to the chancellor's endless potential because we can do anything really, right? We have, I think, a cool opportunity here to really think about what does it mean to do campus history work. And that doesn't always have to be like boring old books and journal articles, right? Right. You know, it's occurring to me right now that folks listening or someone listening could be thinking they know of a story, like maybe someone was at UW and they have some goodies. What do they do? How can they get in touch with you? Please contact us if you have a story. And and don't, if you're listening and you're like, oh, well, like I was there in 2006. Is that really old enough? Yes. If you came to our exhibit, Sifting and Reckoning, in the fall, you would have seen that we went all the way up to 2021. Um, if you did not come, don't worry. We have all of our exhibit available at reckoning.wisc.edu. But if you have a story that you would like to share with us, we want to hear from you. Um, we got so many good leads from people who had experienced things or who said, you know, my like aunt actually experienced this and like you should talk to her. We want to hear from you or your family members or people that you know about experiences on campus, about histories that you think that we should cover, whether that's histories you're related to, interesting people that you know about. So you can contact us at publichistoryproject@wisc.wisc.edu. And we would love to hear from you. Well, Casey, thank you so, so much. Thank you for sharing these histories and for continuing to do the work of sifting and reckoning. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. 
That's Casey Lucini Butcher, UW-Madison's Public History Project Director. You can find a link to their work in our show notes. And here's what else Madison's talking about. Babcock ice cream is back! Construction on the Babcock Hall dairy plant and a three-story addition to the Center for Dairy Research is done. Which means Babcock Dairy Production will return to campus for the first time since they halted operations back in 2019. Thank goodness for cream, am I right? And... Y'all, we got some national champions walking these streets. Shout out to the six Badgers who competed at a national debate competition in Denver. It's the first national win for the UW debate team in decades. Their winning argument, quote, we should regret the fear of death. You guys just, you make me proud. That's all for today here on CityCast Madison. I'm Bianca Martin. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell your favorite troublemaker about us? We'll be back tomorrow morning with more stories from around the city. Until then, remember you have power, even when it doesn't feel like it. Power to ya. Buenísima.